Well, good morning, and and welcome back to the every other week class, I guess. (laughs) We've... We've had a little bit of uh, a little bit of uh, some uh, discontinuance as we've uh, as we have uh, moved along, but uh, uh, last week was great, and I will gladly give up this hour to Nathan Busnitz any day. I trained under his father, and uh, last time I saw him, he was twelve. <laughs> I'm serious; he was twelve years old. Yeah, Nathan. Nathan. Yes, I am. Uh, yeah, Nathan, Nathan was he was it was at his his dad had the back then the seminary would fit in his backyard and he had us over for dinner one night and Nathan was running around. He was a little kid, you know. Tell him that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now he he, has kids. And now he has three teenagers. I just that or four or whatever he said. But anyway, that really had just uh, I was just it was like, oh, my goodness. I mean, my kids make me feel old, but that really made, <laughs> you know, that really did it. Anyway, this morning we're going to be looking at Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. Uh, I've, I've entitled it uh, Salvation's Founder Part 1, and I got that from verse 10, where, where the title comes from. And since we're not going to get that to next week, it's got to be Part 1 and Part 2. That's just the way, just the way that worked out. Uh, but at any rate, uh, just kind of uh, to introduce, to get back to where, where we were, we, we had a we had an interlude in the last time we met, kind of you might call it. It was the warning passages of chapter two, verses one through four, against slipping and neglecting salvation. It was a warning to those 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 folks who are kind of around the church, but uh, but uh, ne- not have not necessarily committed their lives to Christ. They haven't accepted Him as their Lord, and uh, and basically uh, the author there is is warning them: don't let it pass you by. You know, you may not, you may not have another chance. It's kind of the idea in chapter one. But we're really going to go back to the main theme now of chapter one. He picks that back up in chapter two, which is that Christ is superior to angels. That's that's the tech. That's really where he's going. He's he's, he's going to tell us that he says in in uh, cha- in verse five. He said that of which we were speaking, and it's back to chapter one and all the things that went on in chapter one, where we were told that that first of all Christ was was superior to the prophets. He was the heir of all things. He was the creator. He was the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his. Of his uh, of his nature, he's the one who created the universe. He's the one who sustains the universe. He made purification for sin, and therefore he is superior to angels. We also found out that angels actually uh, wor- uh, worship him, and uh, that his kingdom is eternal. And he currently is seated at the power of, of authority, uh, seated at the at the place of power and authority. Uh, it's kind of important just I don't know if you, to remind you that as we come into this text we'll mention this a couple of times probably but as we come into this text that at this at the juncture of this writing of Hebrews writing within Israel there were groups of of people especially amongst the Essenes of Qumran uh, in their writings, it's been been noted that uh, they actually had elevated angels to the position of worshiping them. Uh, they had elevated them to that kind of a position. And so this is a kind of some critical teaching to overcome that. Now, now obviously, not all of Israel did that. Uh, obviously, the Sadducees didn't. They didn't even believe in the supernatural. But, uh, but uh, and some of the Pharisees borderlined on it. But uh, the uh, Essenes of Qumran, it would appear, 
uh, actually had had elevated angels to the position of worship. So it was it was kind of necessary uh, that this be firmly established. And uh, here he's going to come in and talk about. Uh, he's going to talk about the salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus and how that also makes him superior to angels. Angels can't, uh, can't save you. In fact, verse 14 of chapter 1 told us they are ministering spirits. That's their purpose. And they're ministering spirits to us, the heirs of salvation. So this is uh, kind of a, a critical point that he, he is coming to here. And here he's talking about uh, some some folks take this passage and they kind of make it a destiny passage, which that's what it is. It's talking about the destiny of man. Uh, I put it more in a relational idea, but it's still talking about what the future is. This is going to talk about things that are things that are present and are to come. So uh, we'll be we'll be looking at that as we move through this text this morning. Uh, before we get there, uh, does anybody have any any prayer requests they want to share this morning? Our friend that I mentioned uh, last week, Ava, who uh, she had, uh, she did have her surgery, and she's got about a six-week recovery time. So she's going to be down for a while, and she's been in a lot of pain. So. My cousin is um, 63 and has early onset um, Alzheimer's. He's completely lost his mind, and so now his wife is trying to figure out what what to do. Um, she tried for the first time to put them in a home, and they sent them back. Oh. <laughs> and then her caregivers that she had been using are both sick. They've had COVID. And oh, it's just, man. It's a real huge trial for her right now. It's yeah. really difficult to care for. Yeah. Bob, can I ask you to open us, please? Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to first of all look at verse 5. And verse 5, uh, I, I entitled Angels Position to Christ. And in verse 5, the text reads, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And this is the verse that ties us back to where we were in chapter 1. He says, It's, it's, not, it's, it's not to angels that, that uh, God has subjected what is to come, the world in the future. It's not subjected to them. Uh, and that's, he says, and that is in effect what we are discussing. This ties us back, uh, back, uh, uh, back to verse 3 and everything that follows it about who Christ is. Uh, the things we just delineated in the introduction. All of those things, that's what he's, he's tying us back to. He says, this, this is the Christ, this is what we're talking about. This is who we're talking about, not angels. That, that's, his, that's his point here. This has nothing. Angels, angels minister in all of this, but angels are not the ones in charge of it. 
Angels are not the one that brings it about. Angels are not the one who, who have the authority. It's Jesus who is seated at the right hand of, uh, of God. He's, 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 he's told them, listen, don't slip. Don't miss this. Don't, don't let this slide by you. And now let's get back to the point of who angels and the relationship to Christ is. Uh, the admonishment that is given in in chapter uh, chapter uh, two, the verse, uh, the first four verses, it's much like Paul's admonishment to to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians thirteen five. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not realize <clears throat> this about yourself that Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. And that's that's really what he's saying in those in those other verses. And he's saying, okay, we've dealt with that. Now let's get back to the point about angels. That's where we're coming back to. Uh, The subject the subject is come back to Jesus now and the idea that he is indeed superior to angels. Angels don't rule over him. He rules over them. Uh, and, And as I said, in the writings of Qumran, it seems it seems that that they actually had elevated angels to the position of worship. That's what we've got going on in some of the cults today. They, they see Jesus as Michael, the archangel. Well, he's not. He's the son of God. Michael is a servant. He's one of his servants. In fact, Jesus created him. So, you know, you have to, you have to keep that in mind. And, and verse 14 of chapter 1 tells us they're servants. That's their job. And he says, that of which we're speaking, the world to come. Uh, <clears throat> Verse 12 is already in, in chapter 1. That's what he was talking about when he, when he quoted Psalms 102. Uh, he, was saying, he was saying, this world is like an old, old clothing. Uh, it's, it's like some old, worn-out clothing. It's going to be rolled up and cast out. That's, that's what he's, he's calling it. That's what we're getting back to, the world to come. Uh, what is coming in the future? That's, that's kind of the idea he's wanting to express here. Um, and then he, he says, he says, he didn't make the world subject. Uh, or he, he says that angels, God did not subject the world to come to angels. That's not who he's subjected to. The world subject, subject is, is the idea of being ranked in order. It's like soldiers under a commander. I was, I, I was in the, uh, I had the privilege, thanks to a group of my friends and neighbors, uh, to spend some time in the United States Army. And I achieved the rank of sergeant. And as sergeant, every morning we had, we had uh, formations. And um, my squad lined up to my right in every formation, according to rank. At the front of our platoon, which was made up of four squads, was a, was a sergeant first class. And in the front of the formation facing us was the, sergeant, uh, was the first sergeant. Unless the officers came out, and then we all moved around. But that's the idea here. You're ranked in order. And basically, he's saying, I didn't rank the order of things that angels are over the world to come. That's not their rank. They're at the end of the line. That's, that's kind of the idea here. They, they, don't stand, they, don't stand in that, they don't stand in that line. And once again, I, I don't know if you remember this, but in Hebrews very often, he doesn't use the word cosmos for world here, meaning the universe. He uses the Hebrew, or the, excuse me, the Greek word that means, that means the inhabited world. He's talking about people, 
is, is really what he's talking about here. He's talking about the people that inhabit the earth. That's, that's the word that's being used in this context. <clears throat> Excuse me. I left the window open last night. My head is congested. I'm sorry. Uh, but at any rate, at any rate, he says, he says uh, he, he, in saying this, he's, he's, he's making a note here that this world is going to change. Verse 12 and following. Now, those are the things that are, going, that are being talked about here. In Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 14, he, he discusses something of that changed world. In verses 9, uh, uh, 9 through 11, he says, And the Lord will be the king over the earth on that day. The Lord will be the one and his name only. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba uh, to Rimron, uh, south of uh, Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gates of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hanel uh, to the king's winepress. And it shall be uh, it shall be inhabited and there shall never again uh, there shall never again be a decree to utterly destroy, uh, destruction of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And that's a picture of the millennial reign uh, that Zechariah is talking about here. This is part of this world to come. There's going to be a change in the world we have today. Certainly none of those, uh, Jerusalem is inhabited, but it doesn't live in security. Uh, and it doesn't live in peace. And, and it's not secure and, and all of that. And the idea here is they will possess the land. And then currently the world is, the current, current world is in a sense ruled by angels. Obviously God is the sovereign over everything that goes on. Angels don't supersede him in any way. But in the current day, according to, according to Ephesians 2 for uh, John twelve thirty one. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He is the guy who controls the, the worldly order of the inhabited world. You want to know why politics are a mess? Guess who's in charge? It's not a political party, incidentally. But you want to know why the world's in a mess? There's why. In the new world, Christ rules and the saints with him. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 4. You know, incidentally, where are angels in all this? They're judged by the saints. 1 Corinthians 6, 1.13. So there's a big change coming. The current relationship, uh, the relationship of angels to Christ is subservient. They're ranked under. That's, that's, the, that's the point he's trying to make here. That's what he wants them to understand. Angels, do, angels, while they are great and glorious and powerful creatures, are not the ruling factor. Uh, they're not the author of your salvation. They are not God. They are his servants. And then he, secondly, he talks about the position of man to angels in verses 6 uh, through 8a. And he says, he says this, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We're going to stop there. Here he, here he starts out by, by this, this uh, statement that uh, may kind of confound you if you are not really too used to being in Scripture. And he says, he says, he says uh, it's been testified somewhere. Now, 
the first thing that should not pop into your mind is the guy had no idea what he was talking about and he heard this someplace. <laughs> That's not what this means. That's not all at all what he's saying. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He was just, and, and incidentally, Hebrew readers more than likely went, went immediately knew the, what he was talking about. He was talking about Psalms 8. That's where he's going. That's what he's talking about. I, I did a little bit of looking about Psalms 8, and uh, according to some of the resources I saw, Psalms 8, 9, and 10 actually were all were, were a regular part of Jewish worship. They were sang together, according, according to the people I read anyway. Uh, they were sang together. So these would be very, very familiar, familiar texts of these people. So he didn't really have to call it to mind. It's, it's kind of like, like, like if I was to say, it says somewhere that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Does anybody not know where that text is? <laughs> that's what this guy is saying. Uh, that's what this guy is saying. He says, here is God's plan. Uh, here, here we have God's plan uh, for mankind in the general role, uh, in, in general. That's the idea here. He's, he's talking about in the psalm. This is related to man, not to Christ. Verse 9 is going to tie it to Christ, is going to make it messianic. But you understand, to the Hebrews, this was not a messianic psalm. They didn't understand it that way. They saw it as God ordering a man, is, is the way they saw it. Now, understand something. When a New Testament writer takes this test and applies it messianically, it becomes that way. That, that, that's what happens here. But uh, at this point... Where we're looking at here, we're, we're talking about the general role of mankind. That's, that's what he, he's talking about. He's talking about God's general plan for man, as he says this. He uses this word testify, which is in a form that is very vigorous. It's like, I testify. It's, it's, it's a solid, this is no, there's no, this is just the way it is kind of, kind of word. <clears throat> and then he, 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 from that, he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? David, David, if you go to this psalm, David goes to the whole creative order of the universe in this psalm. And he talks about how God created all of this wonder and splendor. And then he goes, and how is man significant in all of that? How is man significant in all this magnificence that you created? This big, huge universe, the stars, the moon, the planets, the animals, the oceans, the mountains, the trees, the plants, all of this stuff. How is man significant? That's, a, that's his question. What is man? What is man in comparison to Everest or the moon or the universe? That, that's what he's saying here. Uh, he's saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? And in this case, the son of man as a reference is, is just the parallel to man. It's not, it's not messianic. It's, it's like, uh, like uh, 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 I'll think of his name in a minute. Elijah would call, or uh, Ezekiel, excuse me, Ezekiel would call himself the son of man. That's what it means. It just means, means you're human. It means you're a human being. That's, that's the idea here. And, and he's described all these heavenly bodies, and, 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 he's, and then he compares man to him, and he goes, what is man in, in this? He seems insignificant to all of this creation, but yet God, the creator of all of this magnificence, cares about man. 
That's, that's, that's his question. You care for him. The word care for him, incidentally in the Greek, is the word we get bishop from. It's episkopos. It means to oversee him. Uh, in this particular usage, it, it would mean more to look after him. That's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? God looks after me. He, he looks after me like a parent looks after their children. That, that's, that's, the, that's the picture he's making here. What, what is man that in all this magnificent universe, you look after him? That, that you, you have that much care over him? Well, if we go to Genesis, which we're not going to turn and read all this, but in Genesis 1, chapter 26 through chapter 30, we find out something about man. And we found out something about man in the relationship to the creation. God, God made Adam, in effect, king over the creation. He put him in the garden. He gave him authority. He gave him a commission. He and Eve were to be fruitful and to multiply, and they were to subdue the earth. Basically, that means rule. That's, that's what that phrase means. Man was given rulership over the earth. That was the, that was the context in Genesis. Uh, also, of all of creation, of all of creation, only man was created in the image of God, the image and likeness of God. He had an exalted position. That's how man has been cared for by God. That's how God related to man in the initial creation. Uh, He was to fulfill and subdue the earth. That was his role in creation. He was to rule. He 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 was to oversee the creation, in effect. But then we have, unfortunately, chapter 3 of Genesis. Or perhaps fortunately, because as... uh, Oh, I just went blank. I hate quoting somebody and going blank because I didn't put them in my notes. But at any rate, uh, one theologian said that uh, what man lost in sinless perfection was more than gained in salvation. You gained much more. Is the, is the, it was his point. Um, the, the theologian Duivere, he said that, uh, speaking of the Imago Dei, after the fall, he says, the Imago Dei was not erased, but it was radically darkened. That's, you know, the man is still in the image of God, but he's darkened, is the, is the point here. Because that's what happened in Genesis 3. Uh, Genesis 3 tells us that sin entered. Uh, David doesn't discuss that, uh, but... In that sin, man's role became hampered. It became somewhat darkened, as Duivere said, and and it it didn't uh, uh, it it uh, uh, it didn't go away, but it was darkened. It was hampered. Genesis uh, three fourteen through twenty four, uh, where the the curses that were placed upon them as a result of the sin. And they were, uh, and, and you'll note in verse 22, one of the main things that happened was, was they were driven from the garden to deny them access to the tree of life. Why? Because they couldn't live eternally in sinful corruption. That's, 
it was actually an act of mercy, if you want to know the, the truth. That's, that's, what that, that's what that was. They couldn't live in sinless, or I mean, excuse me, in sinful corruption for eternity. He, he, man was made to be immortal, but he lost that. He lost that. And part of the curse is, dying surely you will die. And that's, 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 that's the point here. But he, he, uh, he, uh, he lost a lot of other things as well in, in all of that. Uh, um, but we see that God wasn't finished with him. Because what happens after uh, this point is, is uh, man corrupts and corrupts and corrupts to the point God has had enough. And uh, he opens the fountains of the deep and collapses the water canopy of the, of the planet, and he floods the earth, and he kills everybody but Noah and his family and two of every kind of animal. And, and then in chapter 9 of Genesis, in verses 1 and 2, he repeats to Noah, go and multiply and fill the earth. However, the subdue it is left out. Man's not going to be able to do that. I'm sorry, I don't care how you feel about the governor of the state of California, but all of his plans will not fix the planet. You know, it's just not going to work. He can try it, but it's not going to work. And secondly, the animals now fear and dread man. That's why sometimes even good dogs bite you. You know, there's just a fear and dread. That's, that's the point. And then eventually we have Genesis 12, and he calls out a man named Abraham. He calls a man named Abraham, who's the father of many nations, and according to, Rome, and according to Romans 4.16, he's the father of all the faithful. So you see, God isn't done with man. He still oversees him. He still cares for him. But the situation changed some. God seemed insignificant compared to the creation, but God placed him in authority over it. He says, but he says, as a result of all this, he was made a little bit lower than the angels. I think that uh, in a very real sense, that made lower has, has some significance to the sin. I don't know that he was necessarily lower than the angels in the original creation because he was the ruler. Uh, but here, things have changed, and that's, that's what we're talking about now, the relationship they now have. The word angels in the Hebrew text is not there. In the LXX, in the Septuagint, which all the texts of, of Hebrews come from, does translate it angels. It uses that word. In the, uh, in the Hebrew, it's ben Elohim, sons of God. Uh, which is a Job 1-2 reference to angels. So it's rightly translated that way into the Greek. Uh, that's, that's what they're talking about in, the, in this text. But just so you know, that's just kind of a... That's, as, they, as somebody was saying in the conference, that one's for free. Uh, anyway. Uh, but anyway, he says he was made lower. Uh, this is an interesting word. It's the same word that's used in John 3.30 of John the Baptist when he said... He must increase and I must decrease. That's the word. It means it decreased. 
Man was decreased. Uh, He was in this position, and he was moved down to this position. In the rank of things, he went from standing at hand of the formation to over the side of one of the squads. That's, That's kind of what this means. That's kind of what this means. Uh, he was he was lowered. He was decreased. But it also says that that decrease was to take place for a little while. Uh, for a little while. Now, the word little in in the Greek has two ways it can be used. One is de- is in degree. Be decreased in degree, the other, or, or little, little in degree, or it can be little in time. In the Hebrew understanding of Hebrew of uh, Psalms eight, the word used there spoke of decree of degree. It, 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 that was really the way the Hebrews understood this. It it it, uh, it would have said man is uh, man. It would it would have the idea that man is earthbound while angels are are uh, are not. Uh, they are they they are not. Um, and then it also refers to the fact that man is subject to death while angels are probably not. So in degree, man has been made a little bit lower. However, in Hebrews, the way the author of Hebrews has applied it. It probably should be understood as time because he uses the same word when he then when he ties this text to Jesus in verse nine. And in that instance, it is obviously time. So probably here it is time too, because that's really what we're looking at here. We're saying that there is a change coming. There is a world to come. Uh, So for a little while, for a little while in time, man is a little bit lower in degree. It's kind of the idea here uh, that needs to be understood. He says he's, he's not where he was. He's not where he should have been. But this should be understood for a little while is the idea here. For a little while he is in that position. Now that position has been a few thousand years. But <laughs> nevertheless, in God's eyes, that's a little while. He says for a little while. And then he, he says, he says, he says this, he says, you have been made a little lower than the angels and you have crowned and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You made him a little for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And the word crown here is Stephanos, and it means the crown of honor uh, in the creation a man, Adam, was made pure and innocent. He was given glory and honor in the image of God. And basically what he's saying here is in a while, in a little while, that will be restored. That will be reinitiated. That will be reinstalled. That's, that's the idea he's getting to here. And, and then he says, he says, he says, uh, that he's, he will put everything in, putting everything in subjection under his feet, subjection, uh, is is that same word again to line up in order? It's that same idea. It's that same military line up and rank uh, is is the idea. He's going to put everything in subjection under his feet. In other words, he's going to be the head of the formation. He's going to relate that to 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 Jesus ultimately. But he he says here uh, 
he says, like a king on a throne, everything will be below him. That's, that's the idea. That's the idea he's, re, he's, he's wanting us to understand here. Here is where man was placed, which included the angels, below him. Verse, chapter 1, verse 14. But here it's told that won't happen until the world to come. It's not true now. It's simply not true now. So, that, so, so here we, we, as we move through this, he is, he's let us know that angels are not to be worshipped. They're not in charge. They're not the, the crowning glory of creation. It was mankind. And God has, has a deep care for him. He oversees him. He looks after him. <clears throat> but because of sin, man is currently a little bit lower than the angels. His, his position was reduced, but it will be reinstalled. And then he, he's going to tell us how that happens, ultimately, here, as we move into the last part of verses 8 through 9, uh, where he says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He doesn't make this messianic until verse 9. He leaves us kind of in suspense, uh, if, if you will. As, as we move to this, but now he's going to apply this. He's going to take these verses from Psalms 8, and he's going to make them messianic. He's going to tell them this is a messianic mes- message. Uh, and he's going, to, he's, going to, he's going to explain that to us. Again, in reference to the original creation, man was cre- king of creation. God gave him uh, the authority, but sin changed all of that. It made man. Uh, it put it. Um, it took things out from under his control, if you will, and so that at that time, uh, uh, <clears throat> so at that time, we didn't see that. We didn't see man in control. Man's not really in control of anything today. Everything seems to be out of his control, and uh, uh, he tries to control it, but uh, he doesn't do a very good job of it. Ultimately. Uh, he has some high points once in a while. Uh, because today, currently, 1 John 5.19, the world lies in the power of the evil one. And that's, that's, that's the situation we have today. Uh, so we have a chaotic condition, and it continues to, to, to remain that way. Um, in Genesis 3, the change, the change had a, a, a number of aspects. Uh, childbirth became painful. That's all because of sin. Uh, there became discord between husband and wife. No, you can't say the next time you get in a fight with your wife that the devil made you, made her do it. <laughs> you can try, but it won't work. You know, it's because of sin. The ground became corrupted. That's why my gardener every few months sprays my yard with stuff to kill weeds, and it Still doesn't work. (laughs) They come back. You know? He was, he lost his kingdom, Eden. He was cast out of it. All of of these were a result of sin. Death entered. 
Incidentally, when you go to Genesis 4 and 5, you know what you could write over the title of those, those uh, two chapters? Adam's Descendants Obituary Column. That's what it is. So-and-so was born and he died. So-and-so was born and he died. So-and-so was born and he died. That's, that's the list. It's an obituary column. And it continues today. In fact, today the creation works against man. That's really what happens. It works against him. Uh, that's why labor became, labor, uh, labor became burdensome. And the earth, because the work, the earth works against us. Uh, we make all kinds of big machines to try to overcome that, but they break. That's why I had a job. As, as hard as man may try, it works against him. Now, as I said, Psalms 8 was never seen as, uh, uh, by the Hebrews of so the Old Testament Hebrews as messianic. But here the author shows that what uh, the position of man creation was lost is recaptured in Jesus. In fact, this is not the only place Psalms 8 is made messianic in the New Testament. Um, Jesus quoted Psalms 8 verse 2 in Matthew 21, uh, 15 and 16. He quoted it in Luke uh, twenty-two sixty-nine. 69 where he says, the Son of Man is seated at the right hand. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, actually there he quoted Psalm 8, 4, 6, and he quoted Psalm 110, uh, 110 uh, uh, verse 1, one of the other Psalms we saw earlier in the, in the text here. Paul cites it in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 and Ephesians 2, 22, and then here in Hebrews. So basically, uh, the New Testament tells us that this Psalm is speaking of Jesus. That's that's what it's telling us. And that's how we're to understand it. And that's how we're to understand this portion of it when he, when he moves in here and he says, Now, in putting everything in subjection under his feet, he left nothing outside his control. But we don't see that yet. You know, Jesus is the absolute sovereign. But now, things don't appear that way. That, that's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying things don't appear that way. The time hasn't come that everything is where it's going to go. We're not in that changed world yet. We're moving toward it. He says, but everything is not there. It's there yet. And he says, but we see him. And now he's going to talk about Jesus. He doesn't tell us that for a little bit, though. He says, but now we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. He's applied the psalm now. This psalm is talking about Jesus at this point. Yes, all this other stuff is true about man when the psalm was written, and that's what David was saying. But now the author is saying, but ultimately this refers to Jesus Jesus in the incarnation took on human flesh. He became man so that he could identify with man and he could pay the penalty that, uh, that God, God's justice demanded so that we might be saved. And what he's saying here is, is in that Jesus had to step down from his position for that little while 
so that he took a position below angels. He ranked himself, he wasn't below, but he ranked himself. That's very obvious from his temptation when Satan challenged him to jump off of the pinnacle. And he says, you could call myriads of angels and they wouldn't let your foot touch the ground. He still ruled over them, but he put, him in his, he put himself in the position of being a man. And that's, that's the real point here. But we see him a little while made lower than the angels. He says, now... <clears throat> It's not man who is going to triumph over the, over the nature, but it's the one, but it's Jesus. Incidentally, throughout this text, you notice something? The, the author of Hebrews uses his human name to identify him with us, Jesus. He doesn't say, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul would have said. He doesn't say, Christ Jesus. He just says Jesus. He makes an identification to us. It's in Jesus that man's future lies, not a man's efforts. It's, it's in Jesus that man's future lies. He says he's ranked lower for a little while. This is Philippians 2. This is what he's talking about in, when, he, when we come to this great Christological passage in Philippians 2, uh, beginning of verse 6. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And that's what he's saying here. He's applying it here. He's talking about the incarnation. In the incarnation, Jesus voluntarily made himself a little bit lower than the angels for a while. That's what he did. Because he became in the likeness, in the form of a man. He was born into this life like other men. Well, not quite like other men, but he was born nevertheless. And so he applies verse 7 to Jesus now. He's saying, he's saying, this one, if I get in the right chapter, this one in verse 7, the one who was made a little bit lower than the angels, you have crowned with glory and honor. That's what Philippians just told us. That's exactly, uh, that's exactly what he did. He says, he, he defeated death. That's what he did. That was, the, that was the, uh, the purpose of the incarnation. It was the motive or the cause that he would, he would be crowned with glory and honor through suffering of death so that by the grace of God, herein is, herein is the incarnation uh, coming, to, coming to its point. Herein is, is, is the perfect life he led and the ability to pay the price for my sin. And yours too. That he was able to do that. He took it upon himself. He, he, he voluntarily became a little lower than the angels for a little while so that he could save us. This is God's oversight of us. And here he defeated death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And and you understand that when he says everyone, everyone who will believe. 
it's not universalism. It's not saying his death is, is going to save every human being that ever was. It's only the elect. There's other texts that take care of that. But in this point, he's, he's basically saying his death was sufficient. It, it had the sufficiency that was necessary. And incidentally, that was done by what? Because God thought we were great people. And he was getting a really good deal. You know, some of us, he got a, probably got a better deal than he did with others. But the fact of the matter is, he didn't get a good deal. He didn't get a good deal. We did. We did. That's the point. He did it by his grace. He did it out of his grace, motivated by the fact that he is a merciful God who loves his creation and cares for it. And incidentally, this is why there is only one way to salvation, because it is God, grace, love, and mercy that provided it, and therefore he gets to make the rules. (laughs) He gets to make the rules. Man doesn't get to make the rules. I told you two weeks ago about my brother Larry. You know, he believes that he can stand before God based on all this human effort that he has done. We've had this discussion. I don't fear death, he told me, because I know the life I've led. Yeah, you're a debased sinner. And yeah, you did a lot of good things for mankind. But it won't save you. God makes the rules. That's the point. It's by His grace. He made the rules. He made the rules. And here we're talking about His substitutionary death. There's a whole bunch of doctrine rolled up in this. It's not very clearly explained, but it's just rolled up into it. He had to become man, the incarnation. He had to die in our stead. All of those things are, are, are part of this text. This is part of God's care for us. This is what Jesus did. And he, t- he talks about the suffering of his death. He talks about, and it, 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 it uh, literally reads, he tasted death. That he, he tasted death uh, in, in this suffering. Paul says that we share in that. When we, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we share in His tasting death. Paul declared it to the Galatians in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Because He died in my place. You know, I, I belonged on that cross. And each one of you did too. Not Him. But He took it for us. That's the idea here. We were crucified with Christ. In the gospel, this, this phrase, uh, tasted death, is seen in Matthew 16, 28, and Mark 9, 1, Luke 9, 27, John 8, 52. Uh, it, it's, it's a euphemism for he died. That's basically what it is. And all the suffering that went with that death, that's, that's what that phrase means. And that's what he's saying here. He suffered death on our, in our, on our behalf. And it was all because of God's grace. John Calvin wrote, The cause of redemption was the infinite love of God toward us, through which it was that He spared not even His own Son. It was His love that did all that. Love and grace are kind of a parallel idea. The love of God and the grace of God, they're parallel ideas. And and that's what He's saying here. This is what Jesus did. These are the things He did. 
Here, here ultimately, as we come to the end of this, that he tasted death for everyone, that he suffered that death by the grace of God, there is where we come to the point uh, that verse, verse 13 is fulfilled. Uh, that all his enemies will be put under his footstool. That's, that's uh, where this becomes fulfilled. And this is where we then see that, that angels return to their proper place as ministering spirits, which they currently are doing, incidentally. I don't mean that to say that that's a future activity. It's currently where they ultimately, um, they ultimately are. And ultimately what we have here is the fulfillment that he's talked about in chapter 1 where this old worn-out earth gets rolled up and discarded like a garment. And Revelation 20 tells us we have the millennial kingdom, a time in which Israel is restored. We happily are already translated to heaven, and, but uh, have access back and forth. And in Revelation 21, all of human history is, is culminated in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the picture he's talking about here. And here are the relationships. Currently, man sees himself as a little lower than angels. He lost his position of kingship because of sin. But Jesus is restoring that condition. He's bringing it back. Jesus rules over the angels. They are subservient to him. They're not to be worshipped. They're not to be elevated beyond, beyond the fact that they are servants of God. And that's, that's, that's basically what he's trying to get to these, to these people who had misread uh, what was going on. And he's he's trying and he's he's building this point and he's going to go on he's going to go on now talking more about our salvation as we get to verse ten he says for it was for it, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing in many sons to glory should take uh, should ma- uh, should should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering and basically we're going to talk about that next week but that's my point here Jesus is the founder of our salvation not angels. Not angels, not us, but Jesus. Anybody have any comments or questions this morning? Yeah. You were talking about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. As you were talking about how it's for the elect, but it's also only sufficient for the elect. Yep. Does that sound like it's limiting? It is limited. The atonement is absolutely limited limited to the elect before the foundation of the earth. It's by Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. And, and it's all of God's choosing. He, um, Romans 9, chapter 16 and 17. Read those texts. God picked whom he would save. That's what those texts ultimately say. He's not limited in saving everyone, but he didn't choose to do so, is the point. It's, it's, 
can't save everybody. It's not that he can't, it's that he didn't. He saved the elect. Which, you have to understand that. That means, that, that ultimately what that means is, is that, that nothing, no part of your salvation has anything to do with you. It's all done, all done by Christ. It's all by God's preordained plan before the foundation of the earth. I can't comprehend that. I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can quote the theology on it, but my mind can't embrace the fact that God in eternity knew the beginning from the end. Because he lives, he created time. You understand, time is part of the creation. Uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't affect him. That's why when he can say for a little while when it's been thousands of years, uh, for us that seems like a big deal because I never, think, never thought I'd make it to 73, but I did, you know. <laughs> Much, much less, much less to comprehend thousands of years, but but this is the point. the The point is here: S- salvation is is, you know, there there are those there are those who teach that Christ's death was sufficient for all, and in a sense, yeah, that could be true. But the fact of the matter, it only is applicable to the elect. So any way you look at it, the other side of it, it doesn't apply. It just doesn't apply. So you have to be you have to be careful there. You can't. And it's and it's. I know it's a little bit uh, a little bit hard to comprehend, and I really wasn't prepared to go here. But you look in the you look in the passage of, you look in the passage of Romans, uh, which is one that uh, a lot of people you you take them there and they stop right now. And it's talking in that passage. He's talking about Jacob and Esau, and God says. Jacob I loved, who was a scoundrel and a rascal, <clears throat> and Esau, who was the, uh, the he-man, I hated. And I will pick whom I will pick. That's, uh, that's my paraphrase. But, but that's ultimately what it says there. And that's election. That right there is election. And it was long before the church. That's back in Abraham's day. Uh, that's election. I chose, I chose, I chose Jacob, and I didn't choose, I didn't choose Esau. That's a powerful statement there. That's election. Uh, that's that's the that's the the purpose of God. God chose. That's what I said. Grace. He makes the rules. He makes the rules, and and that and that makes uh, that should make us even more. Worshipful and thankful to God because why did He pick me? You know why? I can think of a lot of people who are probably better people than me, smarter certainly, more capable certainly, maybe not better looking, but anyway, uh, <laughs> well, a couple maybe, but anyway, uh, but uh, but uh, uh, why? Why? Well, I don't ask that question anymore because he did. I'm sorry. That's the best I can do right now. <laughs> but salvation is all belongs to God. It all belongs to him, not to us. Even the ability to believe he gave you as a free gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9.
Okay, let's close. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you. Uh, we thank you for this text. We thank you. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you to understand that uh, uh, the ranking of things in your kingdom. Uh, we we thank you for understanding uh, how things are playing out in the world to come. And we thank you that uh, that Jesus is our Christ. He is our Lord. He paid the price for our sin, and that you, by out of your love, your mercy, and your grace, have called us to salvation in him, and we thank you for that, Lord. And we thank you that you gave us the gift to be able to believe, and we thank you that you gave us also your Holy Spirit to understand that we might, uh, we might grow each day closer to you, each moment closer to you, uh, that we might be seen as uh, the reflectors of our Lord Jesus in a world that is desperate and dying. And we would give you the thanks, and we would give you the glory, In the name of Jesus, amen.